Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry, send a donation, or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it. I don't do it to make money, God forbid, but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously with joy, because it does give my heart joy, to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment. Okay? So help me out. All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were finishing verse, I'm sorry, chapter one, and we were dealing with the conception of Jesus and basically the conception and the birth of Jesus. But as we were dealing with Matthew's account, we were looking at things from the perspective of Joseph. Remember, the perspective of, in Matthew is perspective of Joseph and Luke is the perspective of Mary. So we were dealing with Matthew, even as we were dealing with earlier in the account of the genealogy of Jesus uh, through Matthew. And we were dealing with certain issues concerning Jehoiakim and all of that. We don't have time to rehash that. Go back and look at the video, uh, the previous video on genealogy and the one that follows that. But anyway, so we were looking at that at all the point where Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant and he is not the father. So he was intending to put away Mary in a very private way as not to shame her. And we also found out too, and we will see that even rehashed in this next section that Joseph was a righteous man. So in the midst of Joseph desiring to put Mary away, angel of the Lord came to him by a dream in the night and told him that Mary's child was not through infidelity. And we remember, we can't rehash everything all over again. Even though Joseph was betrothed, or we would say in our day, engaged to Mary, according to the customs of the time, such betrothal could only be ended with divorce, a written letter of divorce. And so therefore, for Mary to do these things, that is, to, for in Joseph's mind, he's thinking that she has committed some act of infidelity, it would become literally adultery. And even according to the law, Mary should be stoned along with the man who committed adultery with her. But nevertheless, the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph to calm him and to tell him that Mary's child is of God, that is of the Holy Spirit, and that he should take Mary to be his wife. When Joseph arose from the dream, he immediately take, took Mary to be his wife. That is, he immediately went to Mary's father's house, took her from his father's house into his own house to be his wife. Now, remember, the betrothal period was at least a year. The year has not expired yet. So again, the righteousness of Joseph. And once Mary had the child, Joseph named the child Jesus, according to what the angel had told him. Again, an indication of the righteousness of Joseph. Now, all right, let's go into chapter two. Now, when we get into chapter two, we're going to deal with something. And I don't want to be premature, but we're going to get into the issue of the visitation of the Magi or sometimes we call it the Magi. This is not the same time that you will see when Jesus was the baby. So there is a distinction because you'll see in a lot of um, uh, Christmas um, setups, <laughs> a lot of Christmas setups around the holiday, especially in America, you will see them setting up with three kings coming at, come to visit the baby Jesus. But this is not accurate because when the Magi come to visit Jesus, as we will see here in the book of Matthew, Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger. And Jesus is approximately two years old and he's living in a house. So all of that whole scenario that we create uh, about Jesus with the baby in the manger and the three kings bearing the gifts 
is completely wrong. But anyway, let's just get into chapter two as we deal with the visitation of the Magi to Jesus, the infant Jesus, not the handheld baby Jesus, but the two year old baby Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, there is a lot to unpack in these two verses. So let me just get on my job. All right. So after the birth of Jesus, and we're going to find out later on, he's two years old. It says he was born in Bethlehem. We'll talk about that later on as we get into the text, uh, into the text, uh, in the days of King Herod. So now let me talk about this part, King Herod. Now this is who is referred to as Herod the Great, or also called Herod the Igemian. That is, he is Herod the Edomite. He has an Edomite heritage, but Herod the Great. Now, concerning Herod, Herod was a very, he was an awful king. He was an awful king. He was a rude king and he was a very austere king. And so he would, Herod was known for his um, toughness towards the Jewish people, for the toughness towards the Jewish people. But he was also known for trying to gather the, the, the appreciation. He wanted the Jewish people to like him as a king to accept him as a king. And this is one of the reasons why he built, he, um, uh, I wouldn't say, let's just simply say he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Okay. Not from the ground up, but it was basically a modification of the, of the temple to the, which you will see even in Jesus days in, in his last days, when he was coming out of the temple, Jesus, along with his disciples, his disciples marveled at the temple, how beautiful and magnificent it is. And even also too, when Jesus was speaking to, uh, was talking to the Pharisees and they were bringing up false charges against Jesus. And one of them said, I heard him say that he would destroy this temple and rebuild it in a day. But anyway, things of that nature and how that the Jews would say that this temple took 44 years in rebuilding. Okay. This was all done for the most part, especially this building program by Herod the Great. And he basically did this to garner favor with the Jewish people. Also, Herod was known for his being, um, um, I, the word won't come to me now, but he always thought somebody was trying to steal the throne away from him. And for this reason, he assassinated, I believe, two of his own sons, two of his own sons. He killed because he thought they were trying to take the throne from him. And also his favorite wife, Mary, 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 whatever her name was to that degree, but she was his favorite wife. And he killed her as well. So Herod really had a suspicion about people trying to take the throne away. Now, why am I giving you this information concerning Herod? Because it will play a part in understanding Herod when we see how he reacts when these magi come to visit him. Okay. All right. So now let's go on. So now we got Herod the one who is so suspicious about his throne being taken away. And that's why he was even said about one of the Caesars of the day, that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of Herod's son. It was safer to be his pig. And the reason why they said that was he was a nominal convert to Judaism. He was not a Jew, but he converted to Judaism. And as a Jew, as convert to Judaism, they didn't eat pork. And so it was safer to be his pig because he wouldn't eat you than being his son because he might kill you if he was suspicious to think that you were trying to take the throne away. But anyway, enough said about Herod. So now we got a good picture of this Herod the Great. Anyway, so he was the king of Judea. What happened? Verse number one, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now let's deal with that segment. These Magi are simply magicians or 
wise men and these magicians or wise men are Gentile, not Jewish. And these Gentiles and wise men coming from the East are nothing more than Babylonian, Babylonian magicians and wise men. So now here's the deal. So you ask yourself, now these are Gentiles. Why in the world are they coming to find a Jewish king? Why would they have any interest in a Jewish king at all? And why, as we will see in the text, were they not only coming to find this Jewish king, but also they will worship this Jewish king. But we'll talk more about that as we move through the text. But the point is, why are Gentiles even concerned about it? Number one, but most importantly, how do they even know about this Jewish king at all? And this leads us to Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Okay, when we go back to Daniel, we are taken back that Daniel was a Jewish, Jewish young man that was brought to Babylon. And it was on an occasion when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and none of his wise men could interpret, tell him what the dream was and interpret the dream. And so therefore Nebuchadnezzar became enraged because of this and decided to kill all of the wise men. Daniel having returned back into Babylon at that time, he found out that Nebuchadnezzar was in a rage and was about to kill all of the wise men. So Daniel through the help of God, not only told Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, but he provided an interpretation for that dream. And in doing so, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief of magicians. Now, in the making of the chief of magicians, this was basically an idolatrous title. But even though Daniel had this idolatrous title, because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is not a worshiper of the true and living God. Yahweh, he really doesn't know that is knowing the intimate sense. Yahweh. OK, so what does he do? He acts in according to his knowledge. He makes Daniel the chief of the magicians and the wise men and Daniel having this title over all of the wise men, but Daniel never practiced idolatry. Daniel was not a worshiper of the stars or a reader of the stars, idolatry. Daniel was a worshiper of the one who made the stars, God of heaven himself, that is Yahweh. So Daniel quite naturally in this position, he would have influence over the magicians. Now also too, let me show you something else in the book of Daniel. When Daniel begins to talk about the, the kingdoms that will rule over or have power or authority over Jerusalem until the time will be accomplished. And this is what is called the times of the Gentiles. And in that section of the book of Daniel, it is written in Aramaic. It is written what in Aramaic. So as it pertains, and it's such a beautiful thing how God did that because part of the Bible, the beginning of Daniel, beginning of Daniel is written in Hebrew. When he begins to talk about the rule of the Gentiles from the time of basically Rome until the time of what he calls that indeterminate beast, that new beast that will be the, that is the kingdom. And I can't get into all of that, but the 10, kingdoms of the whole world. By the time that that kingdom comes to an end, when that small stone cut without a hand should come hit the toes, destroy the whole, <laughs> destroy the whole statue. That is the destructions of the kingdoms of the Gentiles. This is done when the Messiah should come. And Daniel speaks of this particular time in Daniel chapter nine, because only in Daniel chapter nine, he gives a timetable for the coming, that is the coming of the birth of the Messiah, the coming of this great King. So notice what I put for you in Aramaic, in Aramaic, which is the language of these Magi, the language of the Babylonians. 
Daniel, who is chief of these very Babylonians, he has, he gives a written prophecy in the language of the Babylonians concerning when the Messiah is to be born. Okay. So therefore, what do we see? These magi are nothing more than magicians or astrologers. That's the idea. Astrologers who have the prophecy of Daniel and in following the prophecy of Daniel, they have determined the birth of the king of Israel, this promised coming one who will be king over all of Israel. And so they are simply following the prophecy of Daniel. So that's why you see these magi in the first place coming. But let me also make two additional points. Remember that we are in the study of Matthew as Matthew is from his perspective. Remember, I told you that go back and look at the introduction concerning introduction of Matthew. The perspective of Matthew is Matthew's audience is to the Jewish people. His audience is the Jewish people and Matthew's point or one of his main themes concerning Jesus is Jesus is born a Jew. Jesus is a Jew fulfilling the prophecies of the prophets of the Jewish people. Jesus is the king of the Jews. That is Jesus is the king, the Jewish king sent to the Jewish people spoken of by the Jewish prophets. So remember what I told you, Matthew is unto the Jews, but look at the wonder of what he does here. Notice, even though Matthew is unto the Jewish people, but notice he continuously, and go back and look at the video that I made concerning the genealogy of Jesus. We talked about those four women, four Gentile women that Matthew chose to speak of in the lineage of Jesus. I can't cover it now, but see that book on the genealogy. But Matthew continuously tells us about Gentile involvement in the worship of this Jewish king. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. Even though Matthew is unto the Jewish people, he doesn't let us forget that Jesus is not only king for the Jewish people, but he is also king for the Gentiles as well. So we see the worship of him in this Magi situation. Okay. All right. So is that all I want to say about that? Okay, fine. That's enough about the Magi and also the issue concerning the bringing in of the worship of the Gentile people that Matthew is constantly allowing us to see. And then notice again what has happened. And this is going to come into play a little bit later on in the text. These Magi came to Jerusalem. Why? Okay. Let me just simply prematurely tell you why they came so that when we get into the text, I won't have to rehearse it again. Later on, you're going to find out that there is a leading star and I'll explain all of that. There is a star that is guiding the Magi. Okay. So the, but the problem with the star is the star appears for a certain period of time and then it disappears. So the star seemingly led them all the way to Judea and the star disappeared. So they couldn't continue to follow the star to the child. And so since they no longer had the star to guide them, they were using what we would simply call common sense. If there should be a king for the Jewish people, go to the capital of Judea at the time. And the capital of Judea is Jerusalem. That's where the king is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. So quite naturally the star is gone. The Magi go to Jerusalem looking for this king. Okay. Verse number two says, now here's the point. And I know one and two is so beautiful, but it deserves so much time to unpack and notice the question that they begin to ask as they're asking around and this message or this asking comes, gets to the ear of this, uh, crazy King Herod. Who is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now notice what they're asking. This son who, this one who is king of the Jews, 
He is not king by any other method except he was born to be a king. Herod was made a king that is through Rome. And we're not going to get into all of those historical measures, but nevertheless, Herod was made to be a king. And even those who were not even declared to be king were ruling before Herod. They were ruling, but they came to power. They took power, but Herod is king through Rome. But this particular one is born a king. He was not to be a king or to become a king later on. When he was born, he was king. And that's how they're asking. So you can see why it begins to cause great, oh, it says trouble or people begin to get really concerned and say, what the world born a king? This is, we got a new king here and Herod is not the legitimate king. But anyway, and the people didn't really accept Herod in the first place, but we're just going on. And so what did they say? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So now notice we saw that means the star once appeared, the star has now disappeared. Okay. Star has now disappeared. So now they're at in Jerusalem, that city, everything that I just told you, and we have come to worship him. Okay. And I'll talk more about that. So they come to worship the new king, worship him as king, but I'll talk more about that. Now let's continue. Verse three, when Herod, the king, remember Herod, the paranoid, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them what? The exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, come back and report to me so that I too may come and worship him. <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay, now let's talk about it. So the message of the Magi coming into Jerusalem reached the ears of Herod. And so when Herod heard about this, he was troubled. And remember, we understand Herod being troubled. Remember we said about Herod, the paranoid guy who even killed his own sons thinking they wanted his throne. So you can imagine how he felt when he heard about this. This is what troubled Herod, but this is not the same thing or the reason behind the troubling of the Jewish people. No doubt the idea, the one born brings about messianic messianic inference with them. And it also brought about messianic with Herod because notice what it says. Once he did that, once he heard about that, Herod gathered together his chief priests and rulers of the people. In other words, scribal people, people who were knowledgeable of old Testament prophecies. And he asked them what, when was the Messiah to be born? Notice Herod understood that this King was Messiah. And also notice here, the translators, Christos, this is the word that is being used. But if you've been following me in my teachings in Matthew, how they use sometimes Messiah and use Christos, same word, but go back, go back, follow me, follow me on all these teachings. But here they says Messiah. That is Herod understood such a one would be Messiah king of the Jews, prophetic king of the Jews. And so when he asked these particular scribes and chief priests, they gave, they spoke to him the prophecy of Micah, Micah five and two, I believe it is. But, and where it says that, and they liberally spoke, in other words, they were not trying to give him a direct quotation of Micah, but they, they basically gave, they use a sense of liberality in quoting Micah chapter five and that he should be born in Bethlehem and in Bethlehem, a small city considered insignificant, but 
from this insignificant city, city that nobody would even give a second thought to considering considering that city would come the greatest person, human being ever to be born. One who would rule and shepherd my people, the Messiah, King of Israel. And the reason why I did it that way, I spoke of it that way, is because I wanted you to see a principle of God. How God takes from little things, small things, and God himself makes great things. So where man thinks it to be little and man discounts something to be nothing, God makes it great. In other words, the principle that no flesh shall be glorified in the sight of God and also the principle, those things that are humble, God exalts. And we see that even in operation in the birth of the Messiah, all types of things in the birth of the Messiah, when he was born, where he was born, how and when he was born, where he was in a stable cave, his parents, people of no great names, people who were basically impoverished themselves. We see all of these things. And even in the town that Jesus was raised, we'll see that later on in Nazareth. But we'll talk about all of that, how God takes the little and exalts them. And let us always remember that it is not the big people. It is not the big towns. It is not the big names that God gives so much attention to first Corinthians chapter one and verse, and also chapter two, Paul, Okay, stop preaching. But how God takes the small so that no flesh can glory in God's presence or in other words, glory to God alone. Okay, enough of that preaching. And so they quote, we're back to the commentary. They quote Micah to him to let him know that this thing has now come about the prophecy of Micah, if indeed. And so Herod, what does he do? Now notice he secretly calls the Magi. No, so, so something is going on here that he doesn't want everybody to know about. And we know. And so what does he say to the Magi? We'll talk about that. He tells, he wants to know, notice now, the exact time the star appeared. Because why? When the star appeared to the Magi in Babylon, that was the time that the child was born. Okay? So he wants to know, what, what, so when was he born? Because his point, the idea of Herod that we're going to see, Herod is not going to receive the child as he's, going, as he's lying here that I may come and worship him. He's lying. Herod, as we know in the scripture, is going to come and seek to kill the child. Remember the paranoia of Herod. He doesn't want anybody to come and take his throne, including the Messiah child. He is a stone fool. But anyway, and totally disregards God, because if you will kill the Messiah, attempt to kill the Messiah, what does that say? Anyway, back to the text. So it asked him about the time the child should appear. And so he sent them to Bethlehem. So remember, after being informed, after Herod himself was informed by his own chief priest, he redirected the Magi. He says, okay, the child is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so he tells them to go and carefully search for the child. So notice now, again, go to Bethlehem and carefully search for the child. Now that is a big job, a big job. Why? Because remember, they would have to go since the star was gone, search from house to house to house. Wow, what a big task, but something happens and God gives relief. So what happens? But anyway, so he says, I got to finish the commentary because I get excited and I start skipping. Here is the big lie. Search for the child. And once you find the child, come back to me and give me the report about the child, where he is and all of that. So why? He says, here's the lie. So that I too may come and worship him. The big lie. And I've already talked about that. Herod had no intentions of coming to worship baby Jesus. He wanted to find out the exact address of his parents' house so he can send it and kill it. Okay. Verse nine. Now let's continue. 
after hearing the king, they went their way and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly <laughs> with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, let's talk about this section. Okay, so after departing from the king, guess what happens? The star that was once leading them when they first departed from Babylon, but that had disappeared, which was the reason why they went to Jerusalem, the star appeared all over again. So we know this was the hand of God. Now, let me talk about this particular star. Uh, basically, it did with the Greek word, I think it's Aster. But the idea of the star, and let me just not beat around the bush. This is not a star as we would understand it in our sense. That is one of the stars, one of the heavenly bodies, basically made up of gases in the heavens, in the universe, in the way in the sky. This is not that because we know that stars have exceedingly great temperature. So this star, as we know here, that the star that was hovered over the house of Mary and Joseph, if, the, if any particular star, as we know it, hovered over the, oh, anywhere close to the earth, it would burn this planet completely up. So this was not a star as we understand it. What was it? This was, as we have seen in many times in the Old Testament, the, the appearance of God by a visible manifestation of light, which we understand to be the Shekinah glory of God the visible appearance of God's glory in light. And it was this, the Shekinah glory of God that they seen and guided them and now has reappeared. And so now we can see why back to the commentary here, the, the Magi are shouting and he said, Oh my God, thank you. Because remember because it had disappeared, they would go to Bethlehem and have to search from house to house. But since now they had the star, it guided them to the precise location of Jesus. They would not have to search at all. All right. So that's what happened there. So now the, the light came and stood over the place where Jesus was. They rejoiced. Verse number 10. Notice when they came into the house, notice they did not come to the stable cave where Jesus was born. Remember that the stable cave, Jesus was born in a stable cave, right? But now they have come into a house. They have now moved into a house. So this is not the time. What am I trying to say? Remember the scenario that many times people would do that is in our country, in our time, what we see the wise men coming in number of threes, we three Kings, and notice it never called them uh, kings. It called them wise men. <laughs> but anyway, we, they would say, we're in our time, you know, the front yard stuff, three kings uh, of the Orient and bearing gifts and with the baby Jesus right after he's been born. No, Jesus is not have been born. He is in a house now and Jesus is two years old. You will see that in when Herod comes to kill all of the babies, but notice what Herod would say. Remember he asked for the precise time, the precise time, the precise time that they saw the star was two years ago. And that's why Herod sends to kill all babies, all babies from two years and under. You got it? So Jesus now is two years old and he is in a house at this time. Okay. Going back to the commentary. And so when they saw him, they fell to the ground. Notice now here is homage to a king. They're paying respect to a king 
but also, also they worshiped comes from the root words participle here, proskuneo, which literally means to worship as worship giving unto God. So what is it saying about the Magi? They understand something about Jesus in that not only is he king, but there is a divine aspect, divine meaning God, divine aspect about Jesus. You are worshiping a child God. So therefore, what do they do? They bow and worship. Now, concerning the gifts that they brought to Jesus, they presented unto him. Okay. First of all, let me bring in this point. Notice and let us once again destroy our Christmas narrative of our day. We three kings, the Magi weren't kings. They were magicians or astrologers. So they weren't kings. And also we three, the scriptures never said it was only three. And also too, it could not be three. Why? Because it had to be enough men, enough envoy of, of so-called magi in order to stir up a commotion in Jerusalem. It couldn't be simply three men. It had to be larger than that. And again, what the scripture never said it was only three. It only used the plural magoi, which means there were more than one. And quite naturally, the argument would suggest had to be more than three to cause such a commotion in all of Jerusalem. <laughs> so we got that all wrong. <laughs> but anyway, now let's talk about the presentation. They worshiped him, king and God. And now they presented him gifts. What were the three gifts? Gold. Gold, which would be uh, uh, normal gifts to a king, but also gold would have what? Great monetary value. And they're not giving driblets. These are not, this is not a little bit of gold. These are magi, men of wealth themselves, and a number of them. So they are presenting Jesus, no doubt, with quite a bit of gold. And then we'll see why this would become important as we move through the rest of this chapter. God always provides. Remember that principle. God always provides. We'll talk about that later. But gold and also frankincense. Now, frankincense was a type of um, bomb, so to speak, but, but it was basically used. Let me just simply tell you this. It was of value. It was a material that had great value to it. Okay. But it was, it was like a, a, a type of oil, so to speak, that you would, that you'll find out that was made, that was used in the making of the, by the Levites for the worship of God. That is God directed. He gave specific ingredients for the making of the oil that was used for him for incense. So when the Jewish priest is when the priest would bring, use the oil, remember the oil, they would have this container with coals, coals in this container, hot coals to the, which they would pour on incense apart. The, one of the major parts of this incense, I think it had four major parts was frankincense. And in this frankincense was used a part of the incense for the worship of God. So when the priest would come before God to worship him with incense, this is what they would use. Frankincense would be a part of that. So what is this speaking of? It's telling of the, the divine nature of Jesus. You worship God with what? This incense made of frankincense. So gold as a king, frankincense as a God. Now look here, the final part, myrrh. Myrrh also too is kind of like a, 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 a oil type thing, oil. Let's consider it that way, okay? Bombish type oil, all right? What is so important about myrrh is, and you will see this also too, when the women come and to get the body of Jesus and they anoint the body of Jesus as well as when Nicodemus anoints the body of Jesus. What do they anoint the body of Jesus with? 
Myrrh. Myrrh. So we have three things. And, and myrrh speaks of the anointing all of death. So what do we see? A king, this one born king of the Jews with the gold, and we bless the king with gold of our treasures. This one born God also. So what do we do? We worship him as God. And with this frankincense, we honor him as God used to worship the God of Israel and myrrh. This one, we also known coming into this world to die. And this ties perfectly, and we don't have time to get into it, but recall when Jesus was born, he was born into a stable cave, a stable cave. A stable cave had, cave had two functions. It was where when shepherds in the field, when they had a, needed to have a place to bring the cattle in from the field, they would bring the cattle in to a stable cave. That's what we keep telling you. It's a stable cave. Also, these caves served as a purpose for which if a person in the city died, if a person in the city died, they would bring this person out to one of these caves. And in these caves would already be uh, uh, um, wrappings, wrappings, wrappings in those caves where they would take the body, anoint the body with myrrh and bury the body that is anointed and wrapped in the stable cave. So it brings about all of these ideas that as we have Jesus being born in a stable cave, point one, a place where people are buried as Jesus is now being presented by, and that's what we see that with the Jewish worship. Oh, I don't have time to bring all of that together. But also as Jesus is being worshiped by the Gentiles and being brought myrrh, something that is used to anoint the body of the dead, we see all of this being brought into case, bring into this case. What? This one, this one born to be king of the Jews is one who was born for the purpose of dying. That is, unlike all of us, unlike every other human being, we were born to live. Jesus is the only human being who was born to die. <laughs> so we see what? Gold, frankincense, and okay, let me go on so it won't be so long. I'm just trying to try to finish it. And so remember what Herod had said, the lie and God knew he knows all men's thoughts, all men's heart. Herod was lying. He knew his intent. He wanted to kill him. And so what does he do? Like God did with Joseph. He also did with these Gentile magi. He warned them in a dream. Don't go back. Herod told you to report back to him so he can worship. He said, no, indeed, do not return back to Herod, but instead coming like the way you came through Jerusalem, go home another way. So Herod would not find out about this child and where he was born, okay? To give God time to prepare, to give Joseph time to prepare, all right? All right, let's go on. Let me, let me take out the time, 42 minutes. Let's see if we can work it out, guys. Now, when they had gone, I'm at verse number 13. When they had gone, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Joseph in a dream. Notice the activity of the dreaming appearances and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now let's talk about this section. Woo, y'all pray. We don't want to get too long. So, all right. All of a sudden now again, the activity of the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream and tells him, get up now and take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. Why? Because Herod is going to seek the life of, of the child. He's going to try to kill him. And so Herod, one, I'm sorry. And so Joseph, once again, remember Matthew, Joseph, a righteous man. 
It shows his obedience. Immediately, he got up. Notice, Joseph got up while it was still night. That means he awoke out of the dream that night and told Mary, get up, get the baby ready. Let's go to Egypt. And he left for Egypt. And he and it says he remained into Egypt sometimes later on until the death of Herod. And I think Herod died in was it 6 AD. Don't hold me too tight on that, but I believe it was. But he remained in Herod in, uh, in Egypt for a couple of years, for at least a couple of years. Okay. A few years, <laughs> let's say it that way to be more accurate. He remained in Herod, uh, in Egypt for a few years. And I'm bringing all of that out for a particular reason. I'll tell you about that. Okay. He remained there until the death of Herod. And then here comes the quotation from the prophet that so that it will be filled with what God spoke through the prophet uh, out of Egypt. I called my son. Now I'll come back to this prophecy, but let me go back to the upper part of these verses. Remember, now, let us recall. Now, even though it was not talked about in Matthew, it was talked about in Luke. Let's go back to the birth of Jesus. When Jesus was born. OK. Now, he was not born in a stable cave because they were poor. That, had not, that was not an indication of the poverty. That was because what? There was no room in the inn. OK. But they were poor. They were impoverished people because what? When Jewish sons are born. After 40, after 40 days, there is an there is an offering that is to be made. OK, there is an offering to be made for the mother, for the cleansing of the mother. All right. And for the redemption of the son. And I'm going to get into all of those details, which means money has to be paid. But nevertheless, let's talk about the offering for the mother for her cleansing. She was if a, if a woman had a son, she was unclean. For 40 days. If she had a daughter, she was unclean for 80 days. Jesus being a boy, Mary was unclean for 40 days. So therefore, after these 40 days, Mary came to the temple to give an offering for her uncleanness. And so therefore, the law required for this ceremonial offering, the idea is a sheep or a goat, a sheep or a goat. How that was the standard offering. However, if the parents was too poor to even offer that, just single sheep, you too poor. Let me say it like I want to say the ebonic way. If you too poor <laughs> to offer a sheep or a goat, it said that you can offer a turtle dove. All right, a dove, a turtle dove. And this was the cheapest, like basically a penny. These could be bought for basically a penny. So this was a cheap offering. So Mary. In her offering for the cleansing, offered up a turtle dove, a dove. What does this say? Mary was very poor. But remember what I said to you earlier concerning the principle God will provide. Remember when I said that? Notice God, he sends these Gentile magi. What do they do? A great number of them, gold. They didn't just, there weren't a few trinkets of gold. Couldn't much of gold. Frankincense, something of great value. Myrrh, something of great value. So Joseph was loaded up when the Magi left. They gave Joseph plenty of money. Why? God, in his omniscience, knowing things that Herod would try to kill Jesus, God is going to get him out of town, so to speak, and send him to Egypt. If Joseph is poor, how can he go to Egypt? He ain't got no money. What did God do? God provided not only for Joseph to travel to Egypt, but God provided for the entire stay in Egypt. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And so that's why we see the coming of the Magi. Okay, so now let's go back. So God sends Joseph after he has been well prepared to go to Egypt because Herod is going to seek the life of the child and tells him to stay there until Herod is dead. Now, then he says, now let's deal with the prophecy. So it can be fulfilled out of Egypt. I've called my son. Now this is a quotation from the prophet Hosea. I think it's Hosea chapter 11, a prophecy of Hosea. Now, even though, now let me, let me deal with this. Let, okay. Point of fact, let me just, cause I, let me cut it short. When Hosea made this prophecy, he wasn't, he wasn't a bit more talking about Jesus than a cat when Hosea made this prophet. 
So what is Matthew doing if he's not talking about Jesus? And we will see this a, a number of times uh, in the quotations of the prophets in the New Testament, especially in the book of Matthew, in ways of how the rabbis and men of the times of Jesus quoted the Old Testament. So what Matthew is doing here is this. He is looking at, remember, out of Egypt I've called my son. The idea is he is reflecting back on Israel's bondage in Egypt and how God called Israel out of Egypt. And what Matthew is doing here is, pay attention, he is making an application. In other words, Matthew is not giving us a literal fulfillment. Okay, maybe one day I'll do a video in the ways in which first century Jews, rabbis, interpreted scripture, Old Testament scripture, the ways in which it was basically called pardes. I'm not going to get into it right now. We're just going to deal with, we'll <laughs> deal with the specifics here. So Matthew is using what is called an application, a point of application. In other words, in the same way as God called Israel out of Egypt, he uses that same single point of application that it will come a time when God will speak to Joseph and call him and Jesus out of Egypt. And so therefore he will call Jesus is being applied my son. He is calling Jesus out of Egypt. This will be done in the future. So as he's sending Joseph to Egypt, Jesus will be later on called out of Egypt. And this is an application of the prophecy of Hosea. All right. Now, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all in his vicinity from two years and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through, the, through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, in uh, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children as she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Okay, now let's talk about this section. Thank you guys for bearing with me so long. It gets tiresome, but I'm trying to make simply chapter two, one video. Harris response. He found out some time passed and he says, these jokers tricked me. And so he became exceedingly enraged when they didn't come back to report unto him. And so what did he do? He do what he had intended to do the whole time. But instead of his desire was, remember, the, Mag the Magi would come back to him, report him. They're at 511 North Nelson Street <laughs> in Bethlehem, the exact point. So he would know exactly where to go, find the child, and kill that child, okay? But since they didn't come back to him, he had no idea. All he had was what? The prophecy, the prophecy. And the prophecy said he would be born in Bethlehem. So since he had no exact address, he, he armed his soldiers. He told his soldier, arm yourself and go kill all of the babies, all of the babies. And again, I'll come back to that from two years and under. So that lets us know that when they found Jesus, Jesus was at least two years old and Herod, and Herod wasn't taking any chances, even though it was two years. Remember what the, the time determined by the Magi, he still didn't take any chances, not just two years, all the babies, two years and under, he wasn't taking any risk. So he did that. So this was a great slaughter in Bethlehem. And so, Okay, then we had the, uh, the weeping. We said there was a prophecy from Jeremiah, and this is the Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says the prophecy was fulfilled that there was a voice in Ramah weeping in great mourning, uh, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Again, you have to understand what Matthew is doing here. 
Matthew is once again the same thing that I just told you earlier, giving us an application in the interpretation of this. Why? Because in Jeremiah 31, uh, we're talking about Rachel, and that is Rachel is uh, identified as a standard for Jewish women. She represents all Jewish women. So Jewish women weeping for, I'm dealing with that prophecy of Jeremiah right now, dealing with that prophecy. Jewish women weeping for their sons. Now the sons that these Jewish women were weeping for were not babies. But notice here, Matthew is talking about babies two years and under. So again, applications, okay? Because these are sons. And notice again, these sons, according to Jeremiah, were not killed. They were not killed, but they were taken enslaved going to Babylon. They were taken as slaves to Babylon. And these Jewish women were weeping because they would see these uh, uh, basically not baby sons, grown ch children, so to speak. They would see them never, ever again. So therefore they were weeping. And notice this weeping was in Rama, Rama. Now let's go to go back to Matthew. Notice these babies again, distinct from what was going on in Jeremiah, they're babies two years and under. And these babies, again, distinct from what was going on in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 31, these babies were killed, not taken as slaves. And also again, notice it says Jeremiah 31 in Rama, but Matthew says these were babies killed in Bethlehem, not Rama. Okay. All of this is so different, but what is Matthew's point? Remember as a way of interpretation, one of the ways of interpretation is in application, the point of application. I think it's called Doth, but we're not going to get into that. And that is a point, a single point, at least a single point of similarity. So what is the point of similarity? As it was in Jeremiah 31, Jewish women were weeping for their sons because they would see them no more. And this is the point that's happening in Matthew time concerning the birth of Jesus. These are Jewish women greatly weeping. Why? Because they won't see their babies no more. First cause Jeremiah cause they're going to be enslaved in Babylonian for the rest of their life. The second cause concerning Bethlehem, what Matthew is talking about, because they are dead. But in either case, these Jewish women are weeping because they'll see their sons no more. So Matthew is giving application as he deals with the prophecy of Jeremiah. Okay. 19. Let's finish it. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Thus, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, now let's deal with this last part. So, it's easy for the first part. When, when Herod had finally died, God spoke to Joseph once again. Notice the constantly speaking in a dream. I like that. Come speaking in a dream. To Joseph. Leave Egypt and go back home because the ones who sought the child, baby Jesus, is now dead. And this is the death of Herod. So what do we see once again? That Joseph was a righteous man. Immediately he obeyed and returned back to Israel. But when he came back, he found out in the regions of Judea when once Herod died. Okay, I don't want to get into all of that 
historical stuff about what Herod did when he died. He divided up his kingdom. He split him between his sons. One of his sons that he split up his kingdoms was Archelaus. He was a son of Herod. And in that part, that's where Joseph was thinking of returning to. But here's the deal. The point I want to highlight. When he found out how Archelaus was reigning, he was afraid. He said, oh, my God, he's worse than his father. That's the idea. Some historical information about Archelaus. Archelaus was bloodthirsty. He was far worse than his father, Herod. For example, in, there was a time when the Jew in one of the it, was, it occurred during Passover time. We know this is a sacred time, sacred time for the Jewish people time of worship in Jerusalem. This Archelaus killed over 3000 Jews during that time. So you can see now why he was afraid of Archelaus. So God again, notice again, coming to him in a dream. You can't miss it. A dream, a dream, a dream. Coming to him in a dream tells him to go into Galilee. Okay. And Galilee basically is a district to which we have Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. All right. And we'll talk about that even more. So God tells him where to go. So Jesus, when he comes back from Egypt is going to be raised in Nazareth of Galilee. And therefore, and this is why he says, then this will fulfill the scripture that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Jesus being raised in Nazareth. So he will be called that's why we see Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he comes from. That's where he was raised. And so therefore that it may be fulfilled, he will shall be called a Nazarene. Now, let me come in on this last portion and then we're going to end the chapter. Nowhere in scripture, it is written that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. <laughs> I don't care how much you search the old Testament, nowhere is it said that Jesus would be called the Messiah, a Nazarene. So again, it, we deal with, that's why one day I'll make this video about Jewish interpretation of scripture, the methods that they used. This is another method, okay? Sold, okay, it's called sold. But anyway, this is a another method of interpretation that is used. It is called a summary. So the idea is this, by being called a Nazarene, in the time, first century Israel, in the time of Jesus, what did it mean to be called a Nazarene? And notice in Galilee, Galilee, the men, the northern part, northern part, and the people of Galilee were normally considered to be ignorant, unlearned, and they also had a certain uh, accent when they spoke. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> But anyway, they were basically considered unlearned and there were no uh, 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 great uh, rabbinic schools in Galilee. OK, no great schools in the north. The best schools were in the south. That is in Jerusalem in the south. And this was the best rabbinic schools. We would call it like seminaries in our time. OK, so they were considered ignorant and they were looked down as well. All right. Also too, let me give you another example concerning the thinking of that day. Uh, remember in the, we see this in John chapter one in the calling of Philip, when Philip had found Jesus, the Messiah, Philip goes to his brother after finding Jesus of Nazareth, what finding Jesus of Nazareth. So he goes, Philip goes to his brother, Nathaniel. And what does Philip say? We found the Messiah. Je we have found the Messiah. What? Jesus of Nazareth. So he's inviting his brother to come and join him in the following of Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews. What was his response to his brother? He said, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? <laughs> so what, what am I trying to say? Nazareth is considered to be a place, ah, my God, and you ain't no, ain't no Messiah going to come from Nazareth in the similar sense concerning what was spoken of by the prophet Micah concerning Bethlehem, a little city. So what is the whole point? What, what Matthew is doing is this. 
He is looking at a summary. What is said about people of Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. What is said about Galilean? They're low people. They're not people of much account. They're ignorant people. And what did uh, uh, Nathaniel say to Philip? Nathaniel, ain't nothing good coming out of there. That's the idea. So when you put in a summary of all of these things, not a particular quote, because notice also too, let me show you something. Notice every time Matthew talked about to fulfill that which was spoken of by the prophet. Notice Matthew would say by the prophet, the singular prophet, that is speaking of a, pro a prophet in particular doing what? Notice now speaking of a prophet in particular, he uses the singular, whether it's Hosea or whether it's Jeremiah or whether it's Micah, he says prophet singular. But now notice very clearly, this was spoken to fulfill that through the prophets. Notice he uses prophets in the plural. So he is combining in a summary, all that was bespoken concerning where this one would be brought up as that is Galilee of Nazareth with all that stuff that I said, Matthew is simply giving a summary and that's why he uses prophet prophets in the plural. So Matthew is not giving us a direct statement from any particular prophet. He is summarizing the whole idea concerning Jesus. Cause notice when they found out where Jesus came from, they looked down on him. <laughs> All right. That's enough of that. Thanks guys for joining me in chapter two, and I'm not gonna even give a rehearsal of all the things that we talked in in chapter two. So join me next time when we get into chapter three in the book of Matthew, and we are going to be introduced to the forerunner of Jesus, who is to prepare the way, prepare an elect people to receive the Messiah when he comes. Chapter three, John the Baptist. See you then.